Harry R. Truman, not S. Truman, who was the president. Harry R. Truman leased 50 acres of land from the Northern Pacific Railroad Company overlooking Spirit Lake near Mount St. Helens. For 52 years, he operated Mount St. Helens Lodge, gas station, and grocery store. In the summer of 1980, some of you remember that summer, or that year, the mountain started showing signs of activity, including several earthquakes. One that actually knocked Mr. Truman out of bed, and to remedy that, he moved his mattress to the floor in the basement. Geologists became convinced that there was a problem with the mountain, and they began warning all the residents to evacuate. Truman refused to go. In an interview, he said that the reports of danger were exaggerated. He said, quote, I don't have any idea whether it'll blow, but I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up, end quote. He went on to say, quote, the mountain is heavily timbered. Spirit Lake is between me and the mountain, and the mountain is a mile away. The mountain ain't going to get me, end quote. He continued to reject the geologist's claims, calling them long-haired hippies, uh, and uh, that there was any imminent danger. He was lauded by many folks as a folk hero for refusing to go. He was featured on the front page of the New York Times and the San Francisco Examiner. He was interviewed on the Today Show by National Geographic, by Time Magazine, Life Magazine, Newsweek, and Reader's Digest. On May 17th, officials made one last attempt to get Mr. Truman to pack up his 19 cats, two dogs, and leave the area, and he refused. The next day, May 18th, at 8.32 a.m., Mount St. Helens erupted, the top 1,000 feet of the mountain exploding with a force of 25,000 atomic bombs. It caused the largest landslide in, the, in recorded history with a, with a debris field that spread down the slope through the area at speeds exceeding 100 miles an hour. The pyroclastic flow engulfed Spirit Lake in seconds and covered the lodge, Mr. Truman, and his pets under 150 feet of volcanic debris. Now, the problem was not that Mr. Truman did not receive enough information regarding the coming danger. The problem was he didn't believe the information he was given. There, there were plenty of signs. He just ignored the signs and refused to believe them, and as a result, he paid the ultimate price. Such was the case of those who gather around Jesus in Luke chapter 11. They were not convinced of the deity of Jesus Christ. They were not convinced with the authority with which He spoke, not because there were not enough signs, but because they ignored all the signs that they were already given. Instead of recognizing his divine power and authority over Satan, the leaders of Israel claimed that Jesus could only do what he did because he was empowered by Satan. Others wanted to see more, not because they were seeking confirmation, not because the signs they had already been given were not convincing enough, but because they wanted to be entertained. They wanted Jesus to do more spectacular things. Though the people demanded more signs, more signs 
isn't what was going to convince them. They weren't going to be convinced by more miracles of the danger that they were in, that they were sinners in need of a Savior. No other signs were going to show them that they were trusting in their own understanding. Specifically, they were trusting in the fact that as Jews, they were God's chosen people, and they thought that was enough. God has chosen us, and therefore nothing bad can happen. We're fine. We're all going to go to heaven because we're Jews. They believed that made them immune from eternal damnation. The crowds did not need additional signs to believe in Jesus. What they needed was for the scales to be removed from their eyes so that they could see clearly. That's the same thing people need today. People don't need dramatic signs. They need divine sight. They need to see things through God's eyes. And in the passage in Luke chapter 11, the people crave more dramatic signs, but Jesus tells them what you need is divine sight. We start with verses 29 through 32, and it's the people craving divine signs. Look at verse 29. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. We see back in verse 16 that others were demanding a sign from him from heaven. And and as the people increased, then the, the demands also increased. We want to see more. We want to see different things. We want to see some spectacular thing in the sky. And Jesus says of this generation, this is a wicked generation. This people, this this group of people at this particular moment in time are a wicked people. Speaking to the Jews, speaking to God's chosen people. Well, what made them wicked? Over 500 years earlier, the, the Jews had just been released from Babylonian captivity and they had gone into captivity because of their refusal to understand and obey God's laws. And they had learned a lot in that Babylonian captivity in the 500 years that happened since, and they had been pretty good at keeping Sabbath law. They were, in fact, they were adamant about keeping Sabbath law, which was one of the reasons they went into Babylonian captivity for the period of time is because they refused to keep Sabbath law. They learned to keep performing circumcision, that that was vital because that was law. They practiced ritual cleansing. They performed the prescribed sacrifices. They gathered for the prescribed feast days. They brought their tithes to the temple. Outwardly, they looked like a righteous group of people. Yet Jesus says they're a wicked generation. Well, in the 500 years since the end of the captivity, over 15 generations... What that generation had learned how to do was to keep the law outwardly while their hearts remained unaffected. They learned to appear righteous without actually being righteous. They learned to live in the public eye as if they were following God everywhere they went and everything that they did, but in their hearts it was a totally different story. They learned to go through the motions. They learned, like many people today, 
to live one life in the public eye and a whole other life in the private. I remember growing up with that in my house. My mother, who was very immoral and very uh, ungodly and worldly, when we, we would go to church and people would say to my brothers and I, your mom is such a sweet lady, and we would smile and think to ourselves, it's not the same woman we live with. Which was true. There was a transformation that took place on the way to church and it reversed itself on the way home. This generation, this generation we live in is a wicked generation. Not a wicked generation because it's been misled. Not because it's been misinformed. Not because it's missing information. We have everything that we need in this generation to come to the right conclusions about Jesus, who He is, what He expects, the right conclusions about our own sin, the need for repentance, and the plan of God. In fact, we have everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. But it's a wicked generation because they've rejected God and said, it doesn't fit my plans. This generation is wicked because it wants to determine the priorities of God. It wants to tell God what the priorities should be rather than listening to God's priorities. This is a wicked generation because it's more interested in political reforms and spiritual reforms. That's true globally and it's true individually. This is a wicked generation because they think they're fine spiritually. And they don't know that they're dead. They look at the law and with confidence they say, yes, I'm keeping the law. But at best it's external obedience and it's only select in that. It's a wicked generation because they pretend that it's as easy to fool God as it is to fool people. This is a wicked generation because they live as if God only believes what they show Him. As if God can't see in your heart. This is a wicked generation because they think they can hide the pride that rules their heart from God. It's wicked because they are lovers of self, not lovers of God and lovers of others. It's wicked because they're trusting in their own righteousness rather than the grace and righteousness of God. They think they're good enough to get to heaven. This is a wicked generation because they are teaching others that the way to please God is to keep the law outwardly. Well, I haven't killed anybody, so I guess I'm okay. They're wicked because they have a form of godliness, but they deny the true God. It's a wicked generation because they're selfish. And their first concern is their own comfort rather than the good of others and God's glory. The generation Jesus was speaking to is a wicked generation, and the generations haven't gotten better. He gives the reason in verse 29 why it's a uh, wicked generation because it seeks for a sign. The people were bored with exorcisms. They were bored with healings. 
Even though they were miraculous in their nature, they wanted something more. They wanted Jesus to, to paint the sky different colors with a wave of His hand. They want to see Him align the planets. They want to see Him do something that, that they've never seen before. The demand was not a one-time request. The, the verbiage is it's an ongoing command to perform. It's like the man who watches a magician do a trick and then says, do another one, do another one. And there's never enough. There's never enough tricks. They think they're watching an act. Not watching God in action. They've already seen plenty of signs. In fact, they had just seen one minutes earlier which started this whole conversation when Jesus cast a demon out of a man who was mute. The man was able to speak. But it's not the signs that change hearts. The disciples witnessed Jesus feeding the 5,000 with nothing but a few pieces of bread and a couple of fish. They picked up way more leftovers than they even started with. And then they went from there and they got on a boat and they went into a storm where Jesus would come walking on the water and calm the storm. And the Scripture reads, they learned no, in Mark, they learned nothing from the miracle of the loaves and fish. The miracle didn't change their heart. Jesus cannot be pressured or persuaded or flattered into doing tricks for people's enjoyment. He's not a circus performer sent to entertain people. He is God in the flesh sent to seek and to save the lost. And He will not get distracted from His purpose. So despite their desire for additional signs, Jesus said, yet no sign will be given it to but the sign of Jonah. There's a lot of Ink has been spilt on what does that mean, the sign of Jonah in the context of Luke chapter 11. But the only other time that, the, that Jonah is associated with a sign is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 and 40, in a very similar situation. Jesus said, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet it will not be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The point of Matthew's passage is that just as Jonah was in the whale and then ex-whaled, it prefigures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there's probably more to it in the Luke passage. Because Jonah in the belly of the sea monster, was not a sign to the Ninevites because they were unaware of it unless he told them. And even if he told them, there's, they didn't see it. So it would just be a story from their perspective. But that wasn't the message of Jonah when he came in to Nineveh. Luke is not including the statement about the resurrection, but his focus in this passage is about judgment. That judgment is coming on this generation. The same message that Jonah had for the Ninevites. So that brings us to the signs of Jonah and of Jesus. Verse 30. For just as Jonah...
became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Jonah's message was to the Ninevites was not, hey, I spent just spent three days and three nights in the belly of a giant fish, and God saved me from that, and He'll do the same for you. That was not His message. His message was, repent. He said, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He preached repentance. He preached judgment. Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Then the people of God, or the people of Nineveh rather, believed in God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And when word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, no, uh, do not let any man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both men and beasts must be covered with sackcloth. Let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. The pagan Gentile people of Nineveh listened to the preaching of Jonah that came, by the way, without signs. Jonah did not go through Nineveh performing miracles. All he did was proclaim truth. Proclaim what God had said and the people listened. And they repented. If the generation that Jesus is speaking to in Luke chapter 11 needed the resurrection in order to believe in Jesus, then why was He chastising them at that point? Why was He saying at that point, because He'd not been crucified and buried and resurrected yet, why was He saying this generation is wicked and is going to be judged? In fact, go back to chapter 10, verse 13. Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So Jesus has chastised groups of people, and in fact, Tyre cities, because they have not believed in Him, even though He hasn't died, been buried, and resurrected yet. To be clear, the Gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it is crucial to our salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But clearly, in Jesus' understanding, these Jews that He is speaking to, and others previously, have had enough information to come to saving faith like any other Old Testament saint. They didn't need the resurrection yet. The Jews of Jesus' day should have known better. In fact, they had more light than any 
group of people ever before them, and really ever since them. They witnessed multiple signs confirming the authority of Christ. The atoning death of Jesus' burial and resurrection would be tremendous proof of His deity later, but they had the opportunity to repent then at the teaching of Jesus. And they refused. Therefore, Jesus speaks of the judgment that's coming upon them. The condemnation from Sheba and Nineveh. Verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up with men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is referencing 1 Kings chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9, same story, of the queen of Sheba coming to visit Solomon. She has heard of Solomon's wisdom and she, she's 1,800 miles away in what would be modern-day Yemen. And she's heard the wisdom of Solomon and the stories keep coming in and they're so amazing that she can't hardly believe it. And she thinks, I need to go and witness this for myself. I need to see. I've been hearing that there's not a question he can't answer. Well, I've got some questions. And, And she's so enthralled by what she's heard that she gathers up a huge entourage of people and she makes the 1,800 mile trip by camel. I want to give you an idea of what 1,800 miles is. From the Canadian border to Tijuana, is 1,400 miles. Imagine riding that on camel, and when you get to Tijuana, you turn around, which is a good idea, <laughs> and go 400 miles north. You hit Tijuana and go back to Los Angeles. She rides 1,800 miles. The average camel under load traveled 25 miles per day. If you took no days off, it would take you one way, 72 days. This is the commitment that she's making to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And when she gets there, she's amazed at everything she sees and everything she hears. And she's able to sit with Solomon and she asks him everything she can possibly think of. And he gives her divine wisdom. He responds in ways she's never thought of, in ways she's never heard before. She's so impressed, so amazed at his wisdom that she leaves thousands of pounds of spices as a gift. And listen to this, four and a half tons of gold. That's how impressed she is. And she turns around. Before she goes home, her response to Solomon was 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 9, Blessed be the Yahweh, your God, who delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because Yahweh loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. The queen is so impressed by what Solomon has in the way of wisdom that she gives glory to God. And Jesus says to that crowd, someone greater than Solomon is here. And you're not listening. 
if this Gentile world leader would recognize the glory of God and glorify God for the wisdom that he had given to Solomon, how much more should those who are listening to God in the flesh speak to them? Jesus said in the judgment day, on that day, when God judges the wicked, the testimony of the Queen of Sheba will stand out against this wicked generation. Likewise, verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation as the judge, at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, someone or something greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were known for their brutality and their wickedness. They would skin their people alive, the, the, the victims alive of the cities they overtook. They would take the heads of the rulers and they would put them on pikes and put them outside the city limits as a warning to anybody that would come in. They would stack skulls on top of skulls. They were known for making pyramids of the, dead, of the skulls of the dead that they killed in battle. This was a wicked, immoral, violent, brutal, prideful people. They were pagan Gentiles of the worst kind. In fact, so bad that Jonah didn't even want to go to Nineveh. Not because he was afraid of the Ninevites, but he was afraid that God would give them the opportunity to repent. And in Jonah's mind, these people are beyond God's grace. They are so wicked, they don't deserve the right to repent. All they deserve is judgment. Jonah would rather God kill him than preach repentance to such a people. So he defies God, tries to get as far from Nineveh as he can, and you remember the rest of the story. And when he gets into Nineveh, he preaches judgment and repentance and the people repent and glorify God. And on Judgment Day, when the repentant Gentile people of Nineveh are ushered into the kingdom of God and the generation that Jesus is speaking to of Jews who had all the light that you could get at that moment in time and heard from God Himself, refused to believe in Him, the repentance of the Ninevites will be an act of judgment, will be a sign of judgment against those Jews. See, it's not more signs that the people needed. Jesus said, someone greater than Jonah is here. And you're not listening. They just want more signs. But that's not what they need. What the people need is divine sight. People need divine sight. Jesus moves from his refusal to give more signs, telling people what they really need. What they really need is to have their eyes opened. And so in verse 33 speaks of the benefit of, of light. The benefit of light. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it on, in a cellar nor under a basket, but on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. The nature of light to shine. The benefit of light is it provides light for everybody in the house. Nobody in their right mind, in a power failure, when it's pitch black in your house, 
turns on a flashlight, goes into your basement, sets it on a table, and sticks a bucket over it, and then walks upstairs and wanders around in the darkness. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's axiomatic. Nobody would argue this. This would be stupid. Nobody does that. That's dumb. Why would you do that? You light a candle and you put it on a candle stand so everybody in the house can see it. Jesus is referring to these little clay uh, uh, lanterns that they would burn olive oil in. They would fill them with olive oil and they'd stick a wick in it. And they would burn it. And in those houses at that time, they're basically just rectangles with no interior walls. And they would have a, in the, either in the corner or a pole that would hold up the roof. On that pole, there would be a shelf. And they would stick that lamp up on that shelf and it would illuminate the house. And that was the benefit of light. Everybody would see. Nobody would be stumbling around in the darkness. So Jesus is not here being coy or, or giving some code. He's just speaking truth. It's the nature of light. Everybody would agree with that. Then he moves on to the application of that. He speaks of the need for clarity. The need for clarity, verse 34. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is also full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Now he metaphorically compares this oil lamp to the human eye. As this oil lamp provides light in for all who are in the house, the Human eye is the means to receive this information that provides light for your heart, your soul. The eye is the lamp of the body. It's the way the light gets in. When your eye is clear, you think of those, you think of a, a lantern and the, the clear shades that go over it. When the shade is clear, all the light emanates from that and everybody can see. Your whole body is full of light. So when your eyes are clear, when all the scales are removed, you see clearly and it, and all this light that God is giving, all this spiritual light floods in and dispels all the darkness inside. The light starts to replace the darkness. Conversely, when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. So if you take that same shade over a lantern and it's all painted black and the top is closed off and you stick it over the thing, well, science says it'll put the flame out because there's no oxygen, but apart from that, you wouldn't see anything anyway. Because the, the inside is black and the light can't get out. Your eye is bad, it's evil, it's sinful, it's got spiritual scales on it. You don't see anything that Jesus is speaking about. You don't see the light, you don't get it. And Romans tells us that the things of God are discerned spiritually. And the unbelievers can't understand them. It's foolishness to them. They're not getting it. If your eye is bad or it's polluted by your own thoughts and own desires, then God's light doesn't get in and your heart remains dark. For that reason, there's the need for examination. Verse 35 then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. The warning is for everyone who thinks they're spiritual, who thinks they're right with God, who thinks they have this relationship, 
Jesus is saying, you better examine yourself. And you better make sure it's light and not darkness in you. Because that wicked generation, that evil generation, would have stood before any group of people and said, I am right with God. I know I am. And Jesus is saying, it's darkness in there. Light's not in. You need to examine your own heart. And and come to grips and be honest with yourself about your own sinfulness. To hear God's Word over and over again did not change the wickedness of these people because their eyes were so dark the light couldn't get in. There will be a benefit to illumination. Verse 36. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illuminated as when a lamp illumines you with its rays. To be filled with darkness is to suffer the eternal consequences with the prince of darkness. To be filled with light is to live for eternity with the glory of God. The only way to be filled with the light is to be open to Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. John 1.9, He is the light of the world that enlightens every man. John 8, verse 12, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46, Jesus said, I have come as the light of the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. You are either currently right now at this very moment living in the light or you're living in darkness. And if you think Jesus is something you can take or leave, then you're in darkness. If you think that that the words of Jesus have little or no impact on your life, then you are living in darkness. And you can think you're spiritual all day long, but if you don't surrender yourself to the Word of God, you are living in darkness. Second Corinthians 4.4 4 warns that in whose case the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're stumbling around and they think they see just fine. John chapter 3, verses 19 and following says, This is the judgment, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. There's a distinct difference in those who are full of light and those who are full of darkness. Those who are full of light want to get closer to the light. Those who are full of darkness want to get further from the light. Maybe you've talked to people, I know I have, who 
who want some proof. They want some sign to believe in God. If there's a God, He'll stop all the violence in the world. If there's a God, then why did my spouse, my mother, my father, my child die? What they're saying is, I want a sign. I want some proof that satisfies me that God exists. The truth of the matter is, no sign would solve it. It wouldn't be enough. Because we don't need signs, what we need is divine sight. We need to have God open our eyes. We need to have God open the eyes of our loved ones who aren't seeing the truth. And nothing you can say or I can say will convince them of that. It has to be an act of God. We can't remove their scales. We can be instruments that God uses to speak truth into their hearts. But they need Christ. And He's given Him more than enough for us to believe. Now we on this side of the resurrection have that added to it. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is enough. We are to reflect the light of Christ as Christians. We don't shine in the same way He shines, but we reflect it the way the moon reflects the sun. And we need to be closer to that light so we reflect it brightly. So people will see. We live in a dark, dark world. A world that hates God. We saw it earlier in our normal reading this morning. We live in a world that despises God. And we need to not worry if they despise us. Because what they need is Christ. And we are the ones to tell them. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy on us. So thankful, Father, that you love us enough to send your Son to die in our place. Father, that you did not leave us without light, but you gave us the glorious light of your Son. Father, let us not be timid about sharing that light. Let our light so shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify You. Father, we live in a dark world. It's only getting darker until You come. Father, let us remember that the darkness cannot overpower the light. But the light of Christ will shine bright if as long as we proclaim Him. Father, may the world see You. May they see the light of Christ. May it expose their need for a Savior. May they turn to Jesus Christ. Father, every one of us knows someone, a family member, a friend, that needs to be saved. Father, we pray that they would see the light of Christ. 
So many people make excuses. Why it's not right for them. Why it's not the right time. Why they don't believe. Father, we know all this is the work of the enemy. Father, would you please save many. Father, we pray for the children in our church that have not come to saving faith. Father, would your grace and mercy open up their eyes to see the truth of your word. Even today in children's church and Sunday school, as they hear the gospel, Father, may they come to saving faith. May, Father, you be pleased to use us as your, your vessels, as your disciples, as your witnesses. And Lord, may we not make excuses. May fear not be the thing that handcuffs us and silences us. But may we boldly proclaim the love of Christ that comes in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know You, would You be pleased to remove those scales from their eyes? Their eye would no longer be darkened, but would receive the light of the Gospel. And Father, we give You the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand as we close in song.